The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. My name is Margot Landman. I am Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Brad Parks, Executive Director of Aid Data and Research Faculty at the College of William and Mary Institute for the Theory and Practice of International Relations. Brad has published on development assistance and the environment and is working on empirical studies of the motivations for and impact of China's development finance. Brad, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. First, tell us a bit about Aid Data. Why was it established, and what does it do? So, Aid Data is a research lab at the College of William and Mary, and um, we're comprised of thirty-seven、uh, faculty and international development professionals, and we're、um, diverse in our disciplinary training and our substantive interests, but we're united by a shared interest in answering the common question: Who is doing what, where? For whom and to what effect, and so the what part of the question, or rather the,、uh, the the who part of the question, is where a lot of this China work、uh, figures in. Uh huh. And how do you obtain the data? Do you depend on government sources around the world, or are there other means of collecting aid data? When official data sources are available, we generally do rely on those and try to add value to them. For example, by Um, adding more refined measures of the purposes of these projects、um, through sectoral classification schema, or by identifying the latitude and longitude coordinates of the discrete interventions that the projects are supporting. So, oftentimes, we're sort of、um, adding a value of、uh, adding a layer of additional value to the existing official data, and then in cases where Um, donors or lenders are unwilling or unable to disclose detailed information about the, their overseas activities. Then we've developed an alternative set of methods to sort of get around the absence of official data.、Um, so AIDATA has codified、uh, something called the Tracking Underreported Financial Flows methodology, or TUF for short.、Um, and TUF is essentially um, a, uh, a way of triangulating. Uh, diverse data sources from media reports, from academic and NGO reports, from some official data that are available in piecemeal ways,、um, and also from the aid and debt information management systems of the counterpart countries. There are other counterparts on the, the、uh, on one side of this transaction, and they themselves have information systems to track in- incoming flows. So we've developed a series of methods to be able to. Join together these、um, diverse, unstructured information sources into structured quantitative data. Are you looking only at government aid, or also multilateral aid, private aid, other forms of assistance? Yeah, we predominantly、um, look at. Um, money that's coming from sovereign states and then from multilateral institutions.、Um, we do a bit of work on private foundation tracking, but our bread and butter is bilateral and multilateral development finance. And why have you made that decision? I think just because、um, it,、uh, first of all, represents an enormous share of the. 
um, the financial flows going from uh, the developed world to the developing world, but also because um, we can have, as uh, citizens of uh, countries in the developed world, um, we have uh, public accountability expectations around how public funds are used. So we thought that's a good uh, place to start to bring greater transparency and accountability and analysis of the effectiveness of these programs first to the programs that are being funded through public funds. That's not to diminish the importance of looking at uh, funds from private foundations or companies, uh, but we had to start somewhere. What kinds of aid projects do you track? Do you do it by government, donor government, recipient government, by sector? How does it work? So we do our best to track um, the, the most important, uh, the largest and most consequential sources of international development finance. And we really try to focus on where we can add the greatest value. So in the case of China, um, they're uh, one of the uh, largest and fastest growing sources of international development finance, but they do not participate in international reporting regimes like the OECD's creditor reporting system or the International Aid Transparency Initiative. So um, in, in, the, in the face of um, you know, their non-participation in these reporting regimes, um, we've decided to make China a priority. Likewise, we've decided to make um, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE, and Kuwait, um, some very large uh, Gulf Cooperation Council donors and lenders that also um, are not particularly transparent about the activities that they fund. We've decided to make them a priority, and we've done that because there's, uh, there's an opportunity for us to um, add informational value to essentially the existing information that's available through official sources. Mm -hmm. You. <coughs> Excuse me. You mentioned tough a moment ago, the tracking underreported financial flows system. Why, first of all, are some of the financial flows underreported in the first place? And second, how do you go about unearthing them? Yeah, so um, the reasons why. Uh, donors and lenders choose to not report or to report in piecemeal ways um, really varies by the, the donor. For example, in China's case, there are a number of different reasons. One reason is that there are many government institutions that are involved in the design and delivery, Chinese government institutions that are involved in the design and delivery of foreign assistance programs. Um, they that that um, Those activities have grown sort of organically over time. Uh, without there necessarily being um, a, a single centralized foreign aid agency and with a common statistical system to capture all of the activities being funded, not only by central government institutions, but even by provincial government institutions. So there's a, a sort of capacity constraint um, in that you have kind of underdeveloped reporting systems and the uh, Chinese government is actively working to remedy some of these problems. Um, and then uh, there's also a, a willingness question. Um, China is itself a country that still faces a number of significant development challenges. There are large pockets of poverty within the country. And so um, it is not um, the most domestically popular 
public expenditure item uh, to have large foreign assistance programs and large uh, loans uh, to developing countries. And so um, I think from what I can, from what I gather, there are domestic political reasons um, to underplay some of the activities that are happening overseas. Mm -hmm. Who uses the data that you produce, that you generate? Yeah, so it is uh, used by a wide variety of um, folks, including um, academic researchers, uh, uh, evaluators, folks who do impact evaluation work. Um, we have had uh, folks from line ministries in China come to us and say um, that they're using some of the data to inform analysis that they've been asked to do by the leadership um, of their, their ministries and government institutions because there is truly a, a lack of information. Um, and so um, even uh, institutions within China, um, when asked to do some type of analysis having to do with overseas health programs or infrastructure programs, they need data just as much as uh, researchers and evaluators do here. And so we are often approached by folks from the Chinese government. We actually had a aid data um, uh, partnership with a, a Chinese government institution in which we embedded one of our own staff members to help them with um, a customized piece of analysis that they, they wanted to do. So I think there's certainly a lot of interest in the donor community, um, in the Western donor community to better understand what China's doing, what are the impacts of the programs that it's funding. And so uh, we hear all the time about um, uh, analysts within the U.S. government and within the multilateral institutions using our data to get gain situational awareness about um, what uh, China is doing in the same countries and sectors where they're working. But then we're also starting to see some take up of the data within the Chinese government itself. So they don't see it as pesky foreigners meddling in their business? Oh, I think there is certainly an element of that, but the Chinese government is large and heterogeneous. And uh, I think people at the higher echelons of the government may find uh, having all of these projects laid, laid bare on a public website to be inconvenient or not pleasing, uh, but there are plenty of technocrats within the Chinese government trying to do their jobs, and sometimes they are asked to do um, different forms of analysis that have to do with China's growing overseas development program. And so I think some of them are far more receptive mm -hmm. to these types of data. Now, you mentioned evaluation, and I saw on your website geospatial impact evaluation and value for money analysis. What do those things mean or do, and why are they useful? Yeah, so one of the ways that um, we try to um, create new knowledge that is useful to policymakers and practitioners is by merging um, data that has been data on interventions, let's say Chinese funded projects in Africa, infrastructure projects. We can geolocate the precise latitude and longitude coordinates where all of these activities are happening um, and measure the rollout over time of these interventions. And then we can merge those data with outcomes that those interventions could plausibly affect. So for example, um, uh, China funds uh, uh, many infrastructure projects in Africa, roads, bridges, ports, electricity grids, and the like. 
Um, we have high-resolution satellite imagery, nighttime light sat satellite imagery. And if you build a road in a rural area of Burkina Faso and suddenly uh, you start to see economic agglomeration along that corridor um, and you start to see buildings erected with uh, lights, um, you can begin to um, measure the effects of the, the infrastructure that has been built. So the basic idea with geospatial impact evaluation is merging uh, sub-nationally geocoded data on the investments with the outcomes and then using quasi-experimental methods of causal inference, essentially mimicking the conditions of a controlled experiment where you have a treatment group that was subject to the program or the investments and a control group, an otherwise similar set of spatial units, they could be villages, they could be one kilometer by one kilometer grid cells that look identical to the treated groups ex except for the fact that they were not subjected to the program. They, they didn't benefit, let's say, from the Chinese infrastructure project. And so then we're looking at the net differences in the outcomes between the treated spatial units and the untreated spatial units. So we've done this to look at the economic development impacts of Chinese development programs, as well as the unintended impacts on the natural environment. Uh -huh. So getting to China specifically, because my questions have been quite general, what are some of the things that you found? So, um, you know, we there has been a lot of ink spilled about the uh, potential effects of Chinese development projects in Africa and elsewhere. But a lot of the evidence that's been presented to date is based on journalistic reports or really in-depth case studies. Um, but we're often left wondering um, how broadly, uh, how generalizable the insights are that are emerging um, from um, these, this, this type of journalistic reporting or sort of qualitative research. And so, uh, some of those sort of headline findings that have come out of geospatial impact evaluations looking specifically at Chinese development projects and Chinese investment projects. One is if you do a head-to-head -head comparison of Chinese development projects in Africa against World Bank funded development projects in Africa over the exact same period of time, you see that the Chinese projects quite literally light up Africa. They're lighting up unlit areas or dimly lit areas through large-scale infrastructure programs that appear to be having an effect in this controlled setting with a treatment group and a control group. We find no such effect for World, World Bank development projects. So this yeah. sort of punctures uh, the conventional wisdom that, you know, the World Bank um, takes due diligence very seriously and sort of um, spends a lot of time designing projects with appropriate safeguards to make sure that they deliver maximum benefits, whereas China, you know, maybe cuts corners and places a premium on speed as opposed to quality. I think these geospatial impact evaluations have cast a lot of doubt on that conventional wisdom. Um, likewise, when we uh, look at just um, Chinese-funded investment projects, so foreign direct investment, and we do a head-to-head -head comparison on how do Chinese FDI projects impact uh, nighttime light, this proxy for subnational economic development, as opposed to U.S. FDI, we find that China Chinese FDI projects have a 
very significant impact on local economic growth and local economic development in Africa, and we find no such effect for U.S. FDI projects. Now, FDI is not necessarily aid. It is not, um, but the tracking underreported financial flows methodology is sufficiently flexible that we can use it to track both development projects and then separately look at um, uh, investment projects where there's a, a commercial interest or commercial intent. And I should also say these very same techniques, uh, geospatial impact evaluation techniques, can be used to look at um, unforeseen or unintended impacts. So another sort of conventional wisdom that's uh, you know often heard is that uh, in their zeal to implement projects quickly for their uh, counterpart governments, um, that environmental safeguards are um, weak or they're not strictly enforced, and that these very large, uh, very hastily implemented Chinese development projects are having um, you know, really negative effects on the natural environment. For example, accelerating deforestation as land is cleared to build road, roads and bridges. Um, what we find is actually that um, there's significant heterogeneity. There are cases where um, Chinese development projects do accelerate deforestation, but by and large, the key finding that we see from the, the large end statistical evidence is that in areas that are subject to um, strong environmental protection regimes, so if there's a, a protected area network and it is reasonably well enforced by the host government, uh, we actually find that Chinese development projects have little to no effect on the acceleration of deforestation. But if uh, Chinese development projects are implemented within or near areas like logging concession areas or areas where uh, environmental rules and regulations are weakly enforced, they actually tend to accelerate deforestation. Mm -hmm. So these kind of blanket statements about Chinese development projects um, you know, being reckless recklessly implemented and despoiling the natural environment are overly crude. You know, it's not capturing the nuance that the context in which these projects are implemented matters, right? The host government rules and regulations condition the impacts, the environmental impacts that these projects ultimately have. Now you said something pretty damning a few breaths back that in comparison to World Bank projects and in comparison to U.S. FDI, the Chinese come out looking a whole lot better than the World Bank and the U.S. Does that mean that the Chinese are doing something right while the World Bank and the U.S. are not? Or are they doing more? Or how would you analyze the findings? Yeah, I mean, there's significant nuance and complexity here. So the first thing is that uh, Chinese development projects, as a general matter, are more focused on funding the hardware of economic development, right? So if you're trying to, um, you know, build or rehabilitate roads or extend an electricity grid, we shouldn't be that surprised that these types of activities are uh, quite literally li lighting up Africa. Right. And it's well-defined and it's concrete. That's exactly right. Measure. That's exactly right. Whereas uh, increasingly, uh, Western donors and lenders, the <coughs> World Bank being a principal example, have become increasingly risk-averse 
about uh, funding large-scale infrastructure projects with uh, potentially unintended consequences, which has led to a huge emphasis on um, having a very stringent environmental and social safeguard regime. It's also led to uh, divestment from infrastructure sectors into the software mm -hmm. of economic development, building institutions, humanitarian support, uh, support for health and education service delivery. And so increasingly, uh, a lot of World Bank-sponsored uh, interventions are not necessarily activities that one would even expect to lead to these changes that are detectable from satellites at night. Um, so there may be a, a, a sort of apples and oranges um, or apples and dragon fruits comparison where um, you know, we're, we're comparing two different types of activities. But it, it should also be noted that the World Bank is not completely out of the infrastructure business. They're still funding infrastructure projects. And the fact that these projects uh, have no detectable effects on this um, important measure of subnational economic development um, is itself a, you know, eye-opening finding. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time. Thank you very much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me.